No sleeping, no eating. Classic cult activity. Hello, Michelle. Geordie, Geordie, Geordie. Hello, hello, hello. Mushy, mushy, mushy. What's going you on? You sound Japanese. Mushy, mushy, mushy. Yeah. No, I'm great. How are you? I'm okay. You can probably tell, dear listeners and Mushelle, I have a cold. And that's just going to happen. That that stuff happens when you live in a cold climate or it's around that certain time of the year or you've started commuting again. I wore a mask yeah. yesterday whilst commuting. Oh, my God. You're one of those people. No, to protect others. And I tell you what, I took that mask off for a moment to sneeze. The man next to me got up and walked away. He <laughs> isolated me. He rejected me. He thought you were diseased. He thought I was diseased. Disgusting. He couldn't see the snot dripping out of my nose because I had a mask on. Quite handy for that. I mean, and if you don't have a mask, you've always got a sleeve. <laughs> yes. Or sometimes what you have to do is kind of wipe your nose on the mask. I have to admit, I have done that. <laughs> I think nice, everyone's done that. Bit gross. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice welcome. Listen, we need to introduce ourselves, Michelle. Hello, dear eavesdroppers. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast, Eavesdropping, the podcast. It's a comedy romp through all things supernatural, real life, and what's the other thing? True crime. True crime. I'm Geordie. And I'm Michelle. We love that you eavesdrop on us and tell your friends. We need your friends to eavesdrop us. We need you. We love Michelle. you. Michelle. Guess what? What? It's that time of the year again. The podcast awards, they want us to enter again. Did they personally email you, dear Geordie? No. We have to go up against those heavyweights, French and Saunders once again, and all those people who've got lots of money behind them. What should we do? I mean, we didn't get anywhere last year. Why is that, listeners? Why is that? <laughs> Did you not vote? For those who did, thank you, by the way. Yeah, we always thank you for everything. But yes, we need you. We need you to spread the word, to get voting for us. I'll look into that. We'll put some links on. Maybe we could ask our friends and the eavesdroppers if they could please let us know what were your favourite parts or episodes of the last year that we can put together in a little clip because that's what we do. We put together a clip for them to listen to and to be judged. Our best bits. Speaking of being judged, by the way. I've just got to mention that two weeks ago we did the episode The Yowie and Zach Barnes. Well, we have an apology to make to a listener in the ACT called Saz. We'll call her Saz in Australia's capital. She said that she was offended to hear us describe that beautiful inland area of the Jewer region as Wolf Creaky and like deliverance. She said that was a very <laughs> 80s frame of reference for us both to use. And she was probably shouting at the podcast. I imagine she was shouting because she says it's all absolutely stunning around there. And I believe her. I'm sure it is. I absolutely believe her too. I mean, that part of Australia is so beautiful, so gorgeous. I'm just saying, I, I mean, look, it could have had a little Tasmania makeover. Maybe it's a little hipster place now with <laughs> distilleries and vineyards yeah. and every other thing. They're making their own like artisanal cheeses and shit. I don't know. Or maybe it is just the rugged landscapes, the rocks and the escarpment and the bushland and the lovely creatures. It is lovely inland. But if you're not used to it, it can. And that Australia is just so vast, especially when you've lived a long time in a very small country. Both mm. you and I live in small countries at the moment. Mm. But despite that, she did say she enjoyed the episode. 
Apologies. Yeah, Apologies says. Apologies from me, Apologies to you. Why do I always sound so Australian? I will say, however, Deliverance and Wolf Creek. I think at the beginning of both of those movies... They are in awe of the beauty of their surroundings. The yes. They're all like, oh, my God, this is God's paradise. And then it all goes and wrong. And picnic at Hanging Rock as well. It's all like that. It all starts off beautiful Lulls and wonderful. Into a, yeah. So. False sense of security. Absolutely. So we, there is a reason why we think these things. <laughs> she also said it's not all about the beach, you know. No. In Australia. I will That's agree. Right. Yes. Well. Oh. I like to. I like the woods here in in the UK in the Inglands. Yeah, they are lovely. I love it. Yes, there's some beautiful places. And do you know what? I always neglect the north. We ought to go to the north. I was thinking you and I should go for a little trek around the northern. I don't know the Lake District or something or Yorkshire. Well, I know Yorkshire quite well. I'm, I'll happily give you a little tour around there. You don't have to give me the tour. I'm sure that we can do it together. So listen, also this week, you may already know this because you opened the email before I did, but somebody wrote in. They did. I know. I saw it. I saw it. We love it when you write in. We Look do how excited it. we are. <laughs> we do love it. It was Linda. Yes, yeah, lovely So we know Linda. who wrote in. We do. Love you, long time Linda. She wrote in because she really enjoyed the episode from last week, which was about... The Living Goddess I spoke about, reincarnation, and you told a very fascinating tale about hypnotherapists talking to people, many, many people, over a period of, I think it was about 50 years or 30 years. Collectively, they had 50 years experience doing this research and had put together all of these similarities from their clients that they'd spoken to who had experienced either, you know, a near-death experience or they were just coming up with all of this stuff about reincarnation from when they had their clients under hypnosis. Look, and whether or not it's true, we will never know until we die. Exactly. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Well, so did Linda and she has a friend who is actually training as a psychologist and a hypnotist at the moment. And so she asked her friend, could you hypnotize me, please, and plant in my brain that I hate chocolate and sweets. But her friend said, that's not how it works. You can't plant ideas in people's heads, like walk like a chicken, that kind of thing. Apparently you can't anyway. She said that you're conscious during hypnotherapy and that ideas can't be planted, but they do reveal whatever is going on, like struggles or your purpose and how it's serving you or not serving you. And then you can come up with alternative strategies. I find that interesting because I have gone to hypnotherapists quite a lot over my life. I really believe in it. My main purpose is to ask them to guide me and plant suggestions. And that's what they do. Maybe it's a different school of hypnotism that Linda's friend subscribes to. I don't know, but I certainly, I think I've talked about this on the podcast. Well, I think what she means is actually, Michelle, that you can't plant ideas that haven't already been discussed or thought about consciously. So you've consciously asked your hypnotist to say, look, I want you to stop me from eating chocolate. So every time I see chocolate, it's make make me think of, I don't know, something disgusting like sewage. (laughs) So perhaps it's the power of suggestion, but they can't plant something like you have died in in your past life and this is what you experienced. And then you wake up and you go, oh my God. No, no. I mean, I think that's what she's trying to say. Okay. Okay. Because you can definitely 
go to a hypnotist and ask them to help you with a struggle. And did they help? Yes. I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. This one particular time when I was very upset about a a death, a, a grief in my life that I'd experienced and I couldn't couldn't stop crying. Everything was making me cry and I was just very hypersensitive and it just went on for too long and I thought, this is fucking ridiculous, I need to stop this. So I went to a hypnotist and I said, listen, I've got to harden up, I've got to stop crying, I've got to be able to put a circuit breaker in here and and move Mm. on. So anyway, did all the the hypno, la 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 la, whatever. The next time I got upset, I went to cry and I was like, oh my God, and I couldn't cry. I couldn't. And I it actually made me start laughing because I was like, it bloody worked. So Wow. And it really got me over a hump. So I do know that it worked. Yeah, you did tell me that. I remember now. I <laughs> you did tell me that. Well. Shut the fuck up. We all remember now. <laughs> but that's in, that's really interesting. <laughs> Anything else? No, but I do have a story for you. <gasps> what are you gonna tell me today, Michelle? What are we on about this week? Well, I'm not I'm gonna I'm gonna say the C word. Cunt. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Your mind I Filth. did it wrong. Sorry. Filthy. So yes, cults. And cults. look, there was actually a documentary that premiered a few weeks ago at the Sundance Film Festival. That's how I heard about it, and it did cause a bit of a stir. Mm. And it's called AM. The Cult at the End of the World. Is that the Japanese one? Yes. Oh! You know this one. Have you heard about it? Did we not talk about it already? We mustn't have. Don't worry. It's called Alm. I'd never heard of this Japanese cult. So, you know, I did a little digging. And for me, it's insane because it went from this little meditation group into this whole other Doesn't crazy it always? thing. Yeah, I know. Always starts with yoga. <laughs> or a prayer group. Oh, God. Or a book club. I wonder if there's ever one that started from a book club. Oh, That would be God. interesting, wouldn't it? Do you know what? Because I did look at this other one, this other cult that I was thinking of talking about where it all started off with a massage. And then it just turned into this weird cult that ended up this girl got murdered in Thailand on this island Jesus. called Murder Island. Kotal, oh I've my God. been well, Don't there. tell us this now. Do another episode about this. Yeah, all right. Put a pin in that. Pin that. Well, basically, I'm going to take you guys back to 1984. 84? Good year. Ra-ra skirts. 84. It's the year for all this stuff. Um, so there's a Japanese guy. Uh, he's called Shoko Asahara. And like I said, he started this little yoga and meditation group in Tokyo. Actually, before long, he had quite a few young Japanese men and women coming along. Thing is, it turns out Shoko Asahara was not his real name. No. No. He was born (laughs) Chizuo Matsumoto and he was basically blind. Oh. Yeah. But he wasn't fully blind. I mean, he was Considered blind by the government, but Mm -hmm. he had some kind of very blurry, vague vision. He went to school for the blind where he would basically beat up and bully the fully blind kids, take their money. Oh, he bullied the bullies? No, 
He bullied the blind kids. Oh, what a prick. He bullied the fully blind children because he was only partially blind. See you next Tuesday. Honestly. Yeah. And I bring this up because I think that shows a bit of what his character is. Do you know what that reminds me of? Did you ever see that movie with Julianne Moore and I think it was Mark Ruffalo or someone like that, maybe not him, called Blind? No. Where everyone goes blind except for her in the world. No. And he's got your little favourite guy who played Che Guevara. What's his name? The actor, Garcia Bernal, that guy. Yes, Gael Garcia Bernal. It's horrific. Don't watch mm. it. No, it's I shocking. won't. Okay, thanks for the hot tip of what not to watch. <laughs> so anyway, I think this guy was a bit of a dick, even back right. at school. Agreed. He studied acupuncture and Chinese medicine. So, And I mentioned that because obviously he did have a background of wanting to help people, I guess. Although, in 1981, he was convicted of practicing pharmacy without a license and selling unregulated drugs that he'd basically put together, like tangerine peels in alcohol (laughs) and selling it to people is like, oh, this will cure all your ails. I don't know. He's dodgy. He's a dodgy guy. It turns out he was always interested in religious movements. And in 1984... He formed Aum Shinsen no Kai. That's when he changed his name to Shoko Asahara and he renamed his little yoga group Ayum Shinrikyo. That was in 1987 he made that change. But at the time, in 84, it was Ayum Shinsen no Kai. And this is when you got to think to yourself, this guy was a man with a plan. Yeah. Well, he applied for government registration in 87 of Aum Shinrikyo and apparently against the advice of cult experts and government officials in Japan, yeah. the Tokyo Metropolitan Government granted him legal status as a religion in 1989. Wait. Red flag. There's, there's cult experts in Japan? Apparently. On the board of... On the, on on the, the board of cults? <laughs> They probably go and consult with people, you right. know, to... Consultants. Yes. Cult. 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 Consultants. No, I can't even say that. Consult. Cult. 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 But I mean, and I guess they probably do that with anyone who's trying to start a religion. They probably yeah. consult with Let's the church. Check and, against all the cults. Yes. And the cults. Yes. So... Interesting. You know, dude knew what he was doing. He knew he wanted okay. to be a religion. In this documentary, which... Full disclosure, I haven't seen because it only came out a few weeks ago. So I'm just reading testimony of what other people have said. Where can we see this doc? At Sundance. And I'm sure it'll be released Oh, it's brand new. Yeah, two weeks ago this all kicked off. In the documentary, uh, one guy they interviewed said, um, Aum Shinrikyo wasn't just a yoga school where you practice breathing and child pose. There was a religious element to it all, especially as Aum Shinrikyo translates to supreme truth in Japanese. Ooh. Yeah, it, it sounds a bit, I don't know, doctrine Yeah, culty. Yeah. So between 84 and 87, there were more than 3,000 people following Shoko, but it wasn't enough. He knew he needed more people on board, so he started doing things to recruit more people who 
Like I always say when it comes to cults, we're maybe a bit vulnerable or a bit lost. And look, also apparently at that time, Japan was financially booming. And they they were up there as a world superpower, mainly because of its economy. And, you know, the technology they were producing was off the scale. But it also meant that at that time, a lot of young Japanese people felt a bit lost. And they were searching for meaning. And they were drawn to the more spiritual sides of things. And... I do think like that was the whole time the world over. Greed is good, all of that kind of thing. So I get it. And I think Shoko kind of knew this and he started doing things like making these little magazines and creating these little strange anime cartoons with himself as the main character, as a guru. And in 1988, he wrote a Buddhism book called Supreme Initiation. And actually he did also start referring to himself as the Messiah of the last century. They love that, don't they? They the cult leaders. They love to call themselves the Messiah. Oh, yeah. They're always, you know, Jesus and the second coming. And he would tell his group, um, who were all basically now followers, that Aum Shin Rikyo could help them develop supernatural skills like mind reading and also levitation. So people were like, sign me up. Sign me up. Who doesn't want to fly? Who doesn't want to, what was the other thing? Read people's minds. I'd love to read people's minds. Amazing. I hate that. that. Do you know what? You know how we talked about the traitors last week? Yes. Have you started watching? No. Because there's a magician mind reader (gasps) on there. In the American one? No, in in the UK one. No, I want to watch the one with Alan Cumming. I love him. Oh, no. This is the one with Claudia Winkleman. The, the okay. British version of the traitors. Right. Anyway, there's this mind reader who's all like, oh, yeah, you know, I do this for a living, blah, 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 blah. Well, but he's, he's a dick. He's totally right. ruined his career. Just to, okay. just spoiler just alert. Anyway, back to this. So, yes, Shoko, he's promising these followers all sorts of things. He then, like all cult leaders do, started to put restrictions on his followers. So he made them live in these compounds where they weren't allowed to leave. You know, they obviously had to give him money. And also he encouraged them to basically eat the bare minimum of food. The usual. Yep. They weren't allowed to sleep more than three hours a night. Yeah. All of this stuff. Break them down. Classic cult activity. Also, he told them they weren't allowed to change their clothes because filth was a virtue. I know. And, And look, it seems that people were loving this. Loving. Yeah, people were loving it. But the thing is that he started to get a bit of a, a bit of credibility because he started appearing on TV shows. He was on magazine covers. He was invited to lecture at universities. And this is mainly because of the religious books he wrote because he wrote another one as well called Beyond Life and Death. Uh-huh. And people just wanted to know more about his doctrine, which apparently is based on the Vajrayana scriptures which is basically a Tantra esoteric Buddhism. Um, and then he also took bits from the Bible and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And just so you know, um, in 1992, Shoko did come out and declare himself to be Christ and Japan's fully enlightened master. So, oh, you know, Shoko. this guy, he does have a complex, yeah. God complex. And his whole platform was that he would take other people's sins upon himself and then he claimed after he took your sins he could transfer spiritual power to you 
Right. So like all good cult leaders, he also had some doomsday prophecies, including yeah. World War Three, and he also predicted that the world would end because of a nuclear Armageddon, which he says was necessary for human relief. We all have to be relieved of being human and die. Basically okay. is what he's saying. <laughs> now put a put a pin in that because that does lead to some other shit. Yeah. Shoko was doing shit like selling bottles of his own blood Blah! for more than 8,000 US dollars, oh, which was big, big on. money back in the 80s. I know. And apparently if you drank his blood, which he claimed was scientifically proven to be really powerful and effective, well, it was a tonic. It could cure you of things. And it I'm also was a blood initiation. Not buying this. I know you're shaking your head here. And also, you know how I told you before that filth was a virtue? Yeah. Well, he would take a bath and then bottle his bath water Ooh. and sell it as a miracle pond. <laughs> a miracle pond? <laughs> Can you imagine how <laughs> rancid that water would be? Absolutely Yuck. disgusting. I'm there for thinking though, Shoko. To take a bath and these dickheads are so into me, they're going to pay big money for my filthy bath water. Really? I mean, like, you've got to give him some credit. Give the guy some credit. Ingenuity. Yeah, okay. There you go. Tick to you, Shoko. <laughs> so then in 1990, he decided he wanted to get into politics and tried to get himself in a local government position where he could then run for prime minister. So he ran 25 of his followers as ministerial candidates in the 1990 Japanese general election. And unsurprisingly, basically no one voted for them and not one single person got voted in. He lost. Instead of being a bit embarrassed by that, he basically got more focused. And instead of trying to heal and help people, his new message was, you cannot avoid Armageddon. Oh, that's pleasant. And that his cult could teach you, not that he calls it a cult, but anyway, that he could teach you how to withstand the coming war. Kind of in a bit of a masterstroke, he then established a Russian branch of Aum Shinrikyo after the 1991 fall of the Soviet Union. Once again, up there for thinking. And pretty soon there were more members yeah, there were more members in smart. Russia than in Japan. Super smart. More than yeah. 20,000 people worldwide were signed up to him. And in Russia, this is even scarier, he managed to get his hands on stuff like assault rifles, oh, wow. chemical weapons, and a helicopter. But the thing yeah. that he really oh, wanted God. to get his hands on was nukes. <laughs> Now, put a pin in that too because I've got something, something on that. So in the documentary, there's apparently some audio where Shoko says to his followers, when the guru tells you to kill people, it means they're at the end of their lives. So that takes the guilt away. That gives me chill bumps. Yeah, well, you know what? But also, he's giving them permission to kill people because they're at the end of their life. You're doing them a favour. We're doing they're you a favour. It's fine. Doing them a favour. Bang, bang. Exactly. Honestly, when you've got a guy that A, refers to himself as a, as a guru and B, tells you that you need to kill people, you kind of know where this is going to go, right? Sure. So on March 20 in 1995, some members of Shoko's cult released sarin, which is the deadly Nazi nerve gas, 
on yes. three lines of the Tokyo Metro during rush hour. I remember this very well, yes. Oh, killing 13 people and injuring more than 5,000 other people with awful injuries and really terrible side effects that they're probably still experiencing them now. Yeah. Really shocking. And I don't even think they called it a terrorist attack back then. What was the year again? 95. 95, yes. Mm. So, look, having an inkling that this could have been the work of Shoko and um, Shin Rikyo, the yeah. Japanese police raided Shoko's headquarters in Tokyo, but he ha- he knew they were after him, so he was in yeah. hiding. And initially they didn't find him. But finally, on May 15, which is, you know, what, six, seven weeks later, they did find Shoko. He was found hiding in an apartment under some floorboards. Under the floorboards of the apartment. Gosh. Still referring to himself as a guru. Why are you hiding then? Over the next 20 years, Shoko Asahara faced 27 counts of murder in 13 separate indictments. And this yeah. was because the prosecution also argued that not only did Shoko give orders to attack the Tokyo subway, which you know killed and injured people, They said it was also a plot to overthrow the government and to install himself in the position of Emperor of Japan. On one hand, that does sound quite far-fetched, but he did try and get himself elected as Prime Minister. Well, try to run for it. So I think they just thought, this guy's fucking dangerous. And also, he was accused of being the mastermind behind an earlier siren attack that killed eight people. Which one was that? At the time, it was uncredited, but it was also in, in Tokyo. So, What, in the tubes, in the underground? I don't think it was on the underground. I'll have to – don't ask me these questions when I don't have all the info. Sorry, <laughs> I don't. Because I looked into more – this other thing that he was accused of, yeah, which is called the Sakamoto family murder. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, not only did he do nerve gas, he apparently murdered people. He'd done murders as well. He'd done murdering people. Basically what the Sakamoto family murder is. There was a guy called Satsumi Sakamoto. He was a lawyer that was working on a class action lawsuit against Shoko and the cult. And the thing is, while he was putting together this class action, he and his wife and his child were all murdered. Oh, shit. Fucking brutal. Anyway, they they threw that at him as well, at Shoko. So over 20 years of trials, some of his disciples testified against him and eventually he was found guilty of 13 of the 17 charges that were levelled at him, including the murders of the Sakamoto family. And on February 27 in 2004, he was sentenced to death. But, of course, his defense appealed, saying that he was mentally unfit and, you know, he had, like, mental illness. However, psychiatric examinations proved that he was of sound mind. So that shit went out the window. Okay. Yep. Also, his lawyers fucked up and forgot to submit the statement that outlined the reason for the appeal. So the Tokyo High Court and the Supreme Court of Japan were like, no, no appeal. Good. In June 2012, his execution was postponed because there were more arrests of cult members. And I guess they wanted him alive to see if they could nail those people and maybe get more information. 
But anyway, on July 6 in 2018, 23 years after that sarin gas attack, and along with six other cult members, Shoko Asahara was executed by hanging. Oh, God. In 2018. Oh, my God. I didn't even know they still did that. I didn't know either. I wasn't aware. I mean, that's fucking shocking. You don't go into the chair. They fucking hang you. That's Or even just the the injection. I don't think they do chairs anymore either. No. 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 I'm so behind the times on, on these, the ways you kill people. So that was the end of Shoko in 2018. But remember how I said he was crazy keen to get his hands on some nukes? Yes. I found this bizarre story. And... I mean, you know, we're Australian. This has connections to Australia. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) So, late on the night of May 28 in 1993, there was a rumble in the outback in Western Australia. And it wasn't massive. It only measured 3.6 on the Richter scale. Maybe Neil the Scientist will know more about this because he's all into, like, geo stuff. But apparently Geoscience Australia didn't really take much notice of this little seismic rumble. But it was logged and then pretty much forgotten until 1995 when after all the shit went down on the Tokyo subway with the siren attack, a guy called Harry Mason, who was a geologist in Western Australia, he came out in the media saying he thought that it wasn't an earthquake two years earlier. He reckons it was orchestrated by Shoko Asahara and basically the cult using homemade nuclear weapons. Oh dear, I thought you were going to say that. Mm. And the reason he was making these claims is because he says that key members of Aum Shin Rikyo had actually been living in Outback Australia at the time. Harry Mason reckons that in April 1993, uh, some of the cult members went to Western Australia specifically to look for a place that they could test chemical weapons without being noticed. And they they did actually buy a place 12 hours east of Perth before selling the land at a loss and getting the fuck out of Australia in October 1994. So they were there. Thing is, after the subway attack in Tokyo, this guy, Harry Mason, started to connect the dots. Honestly, it does sound a bit far-fetched because even in the middle of nowhere, I think it's not that easy to just make a fucking nuclear bomb and set it off and not get noticed, right? But equally, they were there. Yeah. They did buy land. There was a rumble in the outback. Did anyone go in with Giga? What do they call them? The... uh... Oh, Geiger, Geiger counters meters. and things to see if Geiger there was counters. any. Well, uh, there there is some info on that. So, yeah, it's it's a little unusual. Wow. You can't deny that they were there. They they did buy this okay. this land. I believe you, Michelle. No, but I can kind of see it. You know, it does make sense. Does make sense. The rumble, the rumble in the jungle. Just suspend your disbelief momentarily because there are joining dots, but it's not always the case. However, the New York Times got on board, and actually, the U.S. Senate were considering all this as a possibility too. Yeah, partly because the cult was really fucking rich. 
Aum Shin Rikyo had more than a billion dollars in their bank accounts. When a cult has this much money and they have links to Russia, the Americans take notice. Also, they had members of the cult who worked in physics. Uh-huh. This guy, Harry Mason, he had worked in mining. So his background gave him a bit of credibility as well. He also was on a personal mission to prove that this was correct. And he went around on his own back, just going around Western Australia, collecting witness statements from people, which he has got these witness statements, but apparently they're all anonymous. Yeah. So I don't know if they're real or not. But anyway, these statements all talk about people saying they saw a bright light in the sky and then people feeling a shockwave. Oh, wow. Yeah. And also, high-grade uranium was found on the property that the cult had bought. And it was a massive bit of land. It was more than 4,500 square kilometres. That's incredible. And just so you understand what that means, that's more than half the size of Greater London. Okay. So it's a big piece of land, right? Absolutely. And the cult had intended to mine there according to notebooks taken from a few of the high-ranking members. And like I said before, because the cult had Russian connections, the U.S. did not like this one bit. And there was a U.S. senator called Sam Nunn who pushed the U.S. Senate Government Affairs Permanent Subcommittee to investigate. And they got incorporated research institutions for seismology on the case in 1996. However... When they investigated the uh, seismic activity around the area where the property was, they found no evidence of a nuclear blast. Although they did say it was a really unusual seismic recording, but it didn't match up to a nuclear weapons test because the seismic signal was not characteristic with a nuclear explosion. But also they did sort of say it was not characteristic of an earthquake either. Right, right. Then they thought it could have been a meteorite hit, but there was no impact crater. And no sign of it either. No. So in the end, they were like, we don't know what the fuck that rumble was. So they just went with earthquake, not nuclear test. But they were kind of on the fence. Mm. So it does seem on the surface of it that Harry Mason's theory was a bit of a dud. However, when the Australian Federal Police visited the property... They, like I said, they found uranium, but they didn't find any evidence of mining on the site. But they did find chemicals the cult had been using and testing on sheep. Oh. And I don't know why. And it sounds not very nice. No. I don't like that. No. And I did read that there were some reports that say the timeline between the purchase of the property and the earthquake don't add up. Mm. But look, whether it was the cult a coincidence or an earthquake or they were testing nukes. I don't know, but it's all bizarre. Wow, Michelle. Gosh, once Sundance releases this film and it, be- it comes out on mm. Netflix, we'll be able to all watch it and find out more. I'm fascinated because I know that there's so many things intricately woven into the Alm Doomsday cult. I'd love to know more, definitely. And just on the subject of capital punishment did you hear that Mm -hmm. Rishi Sunak our current prime minister 
of England said that he'd like to bring back capital punishment because he doesn't want to pay for all these low lives in prison. Now, that's not a quote. Oh, my That's not a quote. That's just something I heard on the radio the other day. As a prime minister, you can't even have a beer in the pub and just casually say that shit because it... I don't think he said it in the pub. Oh, you never know. (laughs) You never know. Where's this coming from? That's terrifying if that's true. Baywit, it's a baywit. No shirt and thong. What a ding dong. Baywit, it's a baywit. Big gun hanging out. Giddy, 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 gow. Oh, I don't even know. Yes. What the, what the fuck? Following on from that cult, here I have another culty story to tell you. And this is a listener sent in this one. This is a listener's choice. Okay, what have we got? Well, Yannicka took time out of her tubble with her <laughs> pussycat. She loves, this is our listener in Amsterdam who loves to listen whilst in a tubble, which is like a blow-up bath. And she has a pussycat that sits on the edge. How that pussycat stops from getting its claws stuck into the rubber bath and making it pop, I don't know. I actually think that did happen once or not. Actually, it did. They're on their second tumble. You're right. But she led me to the story. I'm just going to let you know. I got this information from a BBC News article that she sent me, also LA Times and the Times of Israel, and a podcast called True Crime Byline because I needed to look hard into it. Because, yes, this is a Jewish conversation we're going to have now. And I don't want people to think that I'm being anti-Semitic by any stretch of the imagination when I tell you about this sect. You're just reporting the facts. I'm just going to tell you what I know. There's something called Lev Tahor. Have you heard of this? No. In Hebrew, it means pure of heart. And there's a sect which claims to be a fundamentalist version of Judaism. So you have them in Christianity, you have them in Muslim religions as well, Mm. the fundamentalists, which are always a little bit extreme. Now, if you go to North London, you're going to see those guys on Saturday with their massive great big hats and the curls down the side. Mm. So these guys do look like that, but the women look very different. I'm going to tell you all about it now. So according to an Israeli court and former members of this sect, they say it's a cult. This report that Yannicka sent me was the story of a 22-year-old man who is an ex-member. His name is Yisrael. And he told the BBC that when he was 16 years old, leaders of the group arranged for him and another 16-year-old girl, who he didn't know, to get married in the Lev Tahor compound in Guatemala. Oh, God. They were called into the rabbi's office one by one and told, next week you're getting married and if you refuse, you'll be punished. Punished. (gasps) So this rabbi was an ex-teacher at a Hasidic, at an Hasidic, uh, has, how do you say it? An Hasidic, Hasidic school. <laughs> an Hasidic school in his native Israel before starting the sect in 1988. The man's name was Shlomo Helbran. Shlomo? Shlomo. It's her name. <laughs> and he established himself as, very much like what you were talking about before, as a messianic, holy man, who could do as he wished while imposing strict rules on his followers in the name of purity. Jesus. He told people he had come from heaven to mend people and had supernatural powers, and they believed him. Honestly, it's it's Shoko, but Jewish. Shoko, but it's Shlomo. (laughs) So there's a group of around 300 members in this sect, Mm -hmm. and they've had to move around quite a bit to evade authorities, Michelle. That's why they end up in Guatemala. Various reasons, exactly. They've gone from Israel Mm. to New York, 
then to Quebec in Canada, then to Guatemala, and then I think they ended up in Mexico. They've also got reach in Romania, lots of other countries, which I couldn't be bothered to write down. In 2013, while they were in Quebec, there were allegations of child abuse and neglect, which sent them running from authorities because the authorities in Quebec at the time discovered some appalling cases of neglect amongst the commune's children. There was fungus, there was all sorts of bruising. It was wrong. It was wrong in all lots of ways. So they tried to rehome almost 150 children from the sect but trying to find enough Yiddish-speaking, because they only spoke Yiddish, Yiddish-speaking Orthodox kosher families needed for the children just couldn't be done. And the community, suddenly up and left, disappeared without trace, practically overnight. And left all these kids? No, the kids came with. (gasps) They hadn't rehomed them. So they just took off. This is where a lot of people started getting interested in this sect, because where did this community disappear to? Well, they went to Guatemala and they moved from city to village to city and back again. And each time they were burning bridges and standing out, upsetting the locals. But not all of them, mind you, Michelle, because some of them joined up. Oh, okay. Back to ex-member Yisrael. He told the BBC about his sister, who was 13 when they forced her to marry a 19-year-old. And she cried so much that she got punished. They banned her from speaking for a year. That was her punishment. (gasps) She was forbidden from uttering a single word to even asking for basic things like food or to use the the toilet. So life was pretty shit for this girl. Israel said that after his sister's punishment ended, she couldn't speak properly anymore. Of course not. But these harsh punishments were a way of life, especially for the children of Lev Tahor, who were often beaten for small-scale misdemeanors. And then the children would be forced to thank their abusers for hitting them and kiss their hand. What happened to Pure of Heart being their byline, their tagline? Well, there's a lot of differences of um, interpretation, I suppose, within. Yeah. But Israel said, now trigger warning here, Israel said that both boys and girls told him they were sexually abused and raped by their elders. Oh. And there's a US support group called Lev Tahor Survivors, LTS, who told the BBC that there are child rape victims among its members, mm. while a source involved in an official investigation says that authorities in Central America have sworn statements from ex-members that rapes were committed. I'm sorry to tell you that. That's awful. So going back to what you said before about your cult, the cult ways of keeping people in, well, what they would do to control the members, they would remove the children from their parents and place them with new families. So these children were then raised with different families. People couldn't get together to plan to leave if that's what they wanted to do. The biological parents were forbidden from having any contact with them. But a spokesman for the group firmly states that their lifestyle is not new or unusual. It's just that compared to the other more extreme orthodox groups, for example, which are accepted and acknowledged, in the Lev Tahoe community, prayers are twice as long as is the norm because members pronounce each word really loudly, really slowly, with great emphasis, mm. and they have a much stricter, so I'm saying that these orthodox groups have strict kosher diets, but theirs is, at Lev Tahor, it's stricter. And it's based on the familiar laws of Kashrut, which is what they base the kosher laws on. Mm. However, their interpretation of the laws are much stricter, limiting certain foods that the other orthodox groups would normally allow. So meat, fish, eggs, all banned. And they're told that that's because they might be affected by genetic engineering, which would make the food unkosher, which is prohibited. 
But the rabbi, on the other hand, <laughs> he could eat what he liked because it's for his health. Of course. That's shlomo. But what are they eating? Everything handmade. Bread and certain vegetables and fruit, and that's it. But they had to make the bread themselves. The religious beliefs of the Lev Tahor include a rejection of Zionism, which is the movement that rejects the homeland for the Jewish people, as you know, Israel, the Holy Lands. They say that Jews shouldn't inhabit Israel until the arrival of the Messiah. Obviously, he hasn't arrived yet because they don't acknowledge Jesus. And that's why Shlomo Helbran moved the group to New York. He couldn't be in Israel anymore. And maybe that's why, maybe they are being persecuted we have to take that into account yes because they don't agree with the zion movement yes okay but anyway while he was in new york <laughs> just take that on board we have to look at both sides of the coin, <laughs> michelle we're fair we're fair here at firm but, fair. but firm but fair but whilst there in new york hellbrand served two years in prison oh because he was convicted of kidnapping a 13 year old israeli boy who was sent to study with him in preparation for the boys bar mitzvah in 1994 Apparently, this boy told authorities that he chose to stay because he wanted to be part of Lev Tahor. Yeah. But in the end, Shlomo was sent back to Israel, but he managed to escape from there, claiming refugee status in Canada due to his political beliefs. Right. I suppose. And religious beliefs. Clever. So Yisrael says that Lev Tahor had falsely promised his family that life in Guatemala would be paradise with animals and children to play with. But the horrible shock for him and his family was when they arrived, they realized what it was really going to be like. Families were separated. Children had to sleep on stone floors, only to be woken up at 3 a.m. every day to pray. There was no food, no water, no talking to other children. And then the lectures from Hellbrands, like going back to before how they do it all very slowly, it went on for hours. And Israel said that sometimes he'd fall asleep standing up. Of course. It's like we talked about just with Shoko before. That's how you break people down. No food, no sleep, no. and then they're broken their, Under their minds. Yeah. Broken their minds and spirits. But is it that or is it because they believe, they believe, they believe in this a lot of things that point to them still believing. Every single thing mm-hmm. that any member would do on the compound was controlled and you could only go to the toilet when they said you could. Oh they weren't educated, nor did they study the Torah, which is the holiest book. Yeah. Or the Talmud, which is a Talmud. Talmud, how do you say that? The principal Jewish book of law. And the only thing they needed to know was told to them by Hellbrands, Shlomo Hellbrands. And they had to learn all his writings by heart. And after all that, the children didn't get to bed till 11 p.m. Oh, my God. Their little minds aren't being given a chance to grow. There's a lot of Hasidic sects that, sects that connect to God through dancing, music and other expressions of joy. But the members of Lev Tahor lived a pretty dull existence, very kind of staid and even laughing was discouraged. The women and the girls in the group had to wear a full body cloak from the age of Three. And that is the reason why the group's nickname in Israel and worldwide is the Jewish Taliban, because they have to even cover their faces when they're in public. <gasps> wow. The children have to look down when they're walking to the walking places. They're not allowed to look at other non-Jewish people. They're not allowed to look at nice things like swimming pools. If they catch a glimpse, they get beaten. Really? But the yes. girls have to be covered up. The boys don't. Completely covered. Oh. They just have to look down. I mean, is this very different from those hardcore other sects that are deemed acceptable or is it a cult? Are they acceptable or people still look at, you know, any kind of extreme Muslim sect where basically 
women are covered up, you know, more and more discussions are being had around whether or not that's an abuse of of human rights. Of human rights, exactly. But then obviously if you choose to be there, but then there's all these children being born into it and then they're growing up and then they're getting, they're asking questions like Israel and other ex-members. But Shlomo Helbrands, he died in Mexico in 2017. He was only 54 and he drowned while performing a ritual immersion. But in a letter to followers a week before his death, he claimed he had no reason to live because some of them had rejected him as a rabbi. The heat was on at this point with all the child sexual allegations and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. And all the moving around. One of the members who left was one of his sons, actually, as well. But he had another son, Nachman, who was even more extreme than him and had even harder methods than his father. He took the reins for the group after his father's passing. Oh, yeah. no. There's a lot of weird controversy regarding his family, which you should look into. He had a a sister that died of a sesame allergy, but some say it's because Nachman forced her to eat sesames and then didn't allow her to get help. That's alleged. 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 That's one way to knock off your family. Exactly. But going back to Israel, you wonder what happened to him. Well, he and his wife had a baby two years into their marriage. So what's that? He makes it. That makes him 18. And then... At this point, he's already uncomfortable with the lifestyle. He's got questions. He's worried for his child. One day, the leaders sent Yisrael into town to get something printed from an internet shop. Now, when he got there, Yisrael had barely remembered computers from before he joined the group, and he certainly didn't know how to use one, so he had to ask the store owner for some help. Mm -hmm. Well, when he saw Google for the first time, his world exploded. Of course. He typed in Lev Tahor, and all this shit came up. He was like, what? Oh, my God. I'm in a cult. (laughs) This is it. It confirmed Israel what he was always already thinking. Yeah. He also saw reports about how his aunt, who was back in Israel, was fighting the group. Now, this came as a surprise to him because he thought the rest of his family had forgotten them. So he was thrilled to hear that she was trying to find them and rescue them. So he found his aunt's email, Mm -hmm. sent her messages, then every time he went back to this shop, he would communicate with her. Yeah. And then he started secretly earning money. How? I don't know, because they're always being watched. But he managed to save up enough for a mobile phone. And then he started ringing her. Wow. So eventually she, they made a plan. She said she was coming to get him. So they made a plan. And then he made a break for it. Slipping out of the gate one night, he ran for 15 minutes through the jungle, fearing that these people were following him, grabbed a bus on the highway, took him two hours into Guatemala City, mm-hmm. found his aunt, even though he didn't recognize her, and uh, they went back to Israel. Now, he desperately wanted to go and find his son, mm-hmm. so she promised him, we'll go back, we'll go back, we'll go back. They did go back a few times, and it didn't work out for them. Plus, he's struggling to live outside of the cult. It was of really course. difficult for him to adjust. But eventually, there was an undercover operation that was launched in September 22, only a couple of years wow. ago. Months. Oh, my God, we're in 24, aren't no, we? No, no. Months. No, I, I thought we were in 24 again. Yeah. I was like, oh, I thought 24? we were in 24 again. Why do I keep thinking that? I don't so know. Bizarre. You got me confused for a second. <laughs> so anyway, September 22, only a few months ago, you're right, Michelle, <laughs> a team made up of two former Mossad agents and an ex-police officer and a lawyer from Israel and an elite police unit raided their new hideout in Mexico where they'd all relocated. Not all of them, some. So this had been authorised by a state judge who'd examined the evidence and decided that there there was evidence of drug trafficking and rape. And also an organised crime unit 
had found evidence of an order that was issued by the group's leader instructing mothers to kill their children with poison if welfare services came to take them away. Very Jonestown. Oh, the women were then instructed to kill themselves after they'd killed their children. So, as a precaution, during the raids, the children were immediately separated from adults and they emptied out the compound. That's when Yisrael finally got his son back. But his wife who was also evacuated, refused to leave the group. So her and about 20 others were held at a government shelter. And five days later, it was quite incredible. They staged a mass escape and just ran off into the night. Yeah. And where are they now? Back with the group. No. Women, children, yep. Two leaders at the time were also arrested on orders of the state judge on suspicion of human trafficking and serious sexual offences. Well, they were freed by the local judge due to lack of evidence. This prompted their spokesperson to say, if they were actually victims of Lev Tahoe, why would they escape their so-called rescuers? Because they're brainwashed and they don't know anything else. I mean, you just have to go back to, what's his name? Who went on the internet? Yisrael. Yisrael. He had an inkling, but he needed to read it and see for it all to sink in. You know, and like I said, they've been broken down. They've got, they're sleep deprived, they're food deprived. You know, they've yeah. been told they need to kill themselves if welfare come, kill their children. Like, And they believe it. Like, they're victims and they don't know it. Well, you say that, but then it's, they're not unlike the other ultra-Orthodox sects. And even like the rejection of Zionism was not unique for them. Mm-hmm. But Yisrael, his account cannot be verified as well. You know, we've only got ex-members who are telling this. Is it because they just didn't want to live that way anymore and they wanted to get out who knows but there is a group of hasidic jews in brooklyn who considered the sect a perversion of their faith mm-hmm. and so they've been working anonymously to help lev Tahor followers recognize that the sect violates jewish principles the lev Tahor don't care that it violates jewish principles no. they've got their own doctrine yeah also last year a u.s federal court sentenced the leader nachman who's 40 to 12 years imprisonment along with another one of the leaders for six convictions including child sexual exploitation and kidnapping they're both u.s citizens so they have to serve their time Mm -hmm. and it transpired that he had kidnapped his sister's children from new york she'd escaped i think twice and he'd brought them back twice and they were bringing these children back to marry older men (sighs) even though the sister and even the kidnapped children mm-hmm. didn't you know didn't enjoy the experience they have pled for leniency and of course they will be appealing the conviction right so it's a bit of a mess yeah what's the upshot here that's the upshot that is the mm. upshot michelle that's all i can tell you so they're still in existence as far as i can make out Nachman and a couple of the other leaders have been in prison now for a while unless they've been released i couldn't find any up-to-date information about that There are, or there were, only 300 members and they're having to move around an awful lot. Mm. If they're there, it's because they want to be, I think. The children, on the other hand, have to grow up within that and then decide, unfortunately, whether or not there are rapes. We don't know. There is papers saying, testimonies from ex-members saying that there have been. Mm -hmm. They've all denied the uh, marrying, especially Shlomo when he was alive, would deny that they were marrying 
young girls off to older men. He actually said, it goes against the law. I can't do that. If I could, I would. Right. He's actually been heard saying that. Okay. If I could, I would, and I did. Allegedly. Allegedly. But is it a case of just being misunderstood, you know, just choosing a different way of life? Like, say, for example, the Amish choose to live differently. Should we judge them? Well, if there are human rights being exploited... Mm then yeah i guess it's really hard because the lines are always blurred in these situations exactly are we harshly judging them yeah are they being judged harshly by the world's media because we don't understand there are lots of layers to this and when religion is involved and certainly elements of cultish behavior it's not easy to unpack it's easy as an outsider to look and i think you always have some element of judgment but i don't fully understand the ins and outs of it And obviously people are given an option to escape and to be freed and they go back. So I don't know what that says. Well, you think about it, right? The Jewish faith and Orthodox Jewish faith especially has been around for millennia. Clearly, it's an established religion. It's recognized. Unlike other cults, like, for example, the one you just spoke about where it was just made up. He did just make it up. He just wanted to be a messiah, a guru. Then you've got Jim Jones, who is an offshoot of a version of something that also has been around for millennia, Christianity. He started as a Christian. What was it? The people, I can't remember the name of his cult. People's Temple. People's Temple, that's it. He kind of just adjusted it to fit himself. And I think that Mm. power that goes to their heads, or maybe it's just... What's the word? Divinity, feeling like you're divine, being touched by the hand of God. Who knows? Is it madness? And then you manage to bring people along with you. I'm also thinking of David Koresh here in this moment. Yeah, I mean, look, they're all charismatic leaders and they all obviously have the gift of the gab and they're offering people something that people want and need and they, uh, they think will fulfill them. But I don't need that cult. I don't need... Don't need I don't it. need Lev Tahoe. Sorry. I quite like having free free will. Yeah. I like that in my Me life. Me too. I want to eat and drink and go to sleep when I want. Yeah. I do what I want. Yes. Although we have done our time, you know, at school. We had to toe yeah, the line. That's not a cult. No. Well, look, thank you so much. That was an amazing story. I really loved Thanks. it. Lots of questions. Lots of questions about cults. And lots of answers. That's us for another week, I guess, Michelle. So all that we can do is let everybody know that wherever you are, whatever you do, just, just keep eavesdropping. 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 Eavesdropping.